Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 199 of Just the Zoo of Us. If you've been with us for a while or follow along with us on social media, you may know that we are in the middle of a big move from Florida all the way to Washington. So all of our stuff, including our recording equipment, is currently in a box on a truck somewhere, which is why I'm recording this intro on my phone. But don't worry, this guest episode was recorded in advance, and I am so thrilled to share it with you because this week I'm talking with an evolutionary biologist who's here to review the little birds with the ultimate riz, satin bowerbirds. Anyone who's ever tried to impress a crush can take some notes from this episode as we discuss building and decorating the ultimate bachelor pad, the value of a little practice courtship with the fellas, learning the delicate art of choosing the right mate, and so much more. One man's trash does in fact become one bird's treasure, and by trash, I mean toothbrush. Just the Zoo of Us presents Satin Bowerbirds with Dr. Seth Coleman. and welcome to Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. This week, I'm so excited to bring a new friend whose voice may be familiar to some of you. Uh, This is Dr. Seth Coleman. Say hi, Seth. Hello, everybody. And Seth, what are your pronouns real quick? He, him, please. Thank you so much. Seth, I have to admit, for the first, like, couple of months that I followed you, I legitimately thought your name was Chuck. (laughs) You're not because alone. On TikTok, on TikTok, you go by Chuck Darwin. <laughs> Correct. Is that just like a fun nod to our boy, Chucky D? It is. It is a bit of an homage to uh, to Charles Darwin and all of his contributions to our understanding of life on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> and his menacery. <laughs> yes, truly. Far from perfect, but he did shake things up quite a bit and gave us a, a pretty pretty awesome foundation on which to move forward with our understandings. We have such a sort of running joke on this podcast where at any time our boy gets a mention, I'm immediately on high alert. I'm like, what on earth is about to come out of this man's mouth? (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I understand. (laughs) So for those of you who maybe have seen you on TikTok, you post a lot of videos on there where you talk about your work in biology or animals that you've learned about or studied. So for people who are maybe new to you, I'd love it if we could get to know you a little bit before we talk about our animal friend for today. How did you uh, get into your work with animals? Um, I've been a, a lover of animals since I was a little kid, and it really just crystallized over time as I went through school and learned more about all the research that people had done and all the groundwork that was laid before us on animal behavior and evolution. I honestly just became more and more and more fascinated with questions like, why is that animal doing what it's doing? Why is it like that? Why is it like that? What in the world? How in the world can we explain that? <laughs> how did you arrive at this particular conclusion? <laughs> I really found I just wanted to know more. You know, it started as just a basic fascination with bright colors, melodious songs, and certainly like the weapons, you know, the big antlers and big canine teeth. And I just wanted to know how, why, and the what of those those behaviors and those incredible traits. And that really just 
evolved, so to speak, into my pursuit of sexual selection and mate choice in graduate school, studying satin bowerbirds that I think we're going to talk about a little bit, and then on to a postdoctoral fellowship, studying speciation mechanisms and the genetics of, of speciation in these Mexican fishes. I feel really grateful to have done some really fun things, studying incredible animals in some pretty far off parts of the world. It's I feel really lucky. We were talking a little bit before I hit record. And you were telling me that you had worked for a while with fishes in Texas, right? So I was at Texas A&M University as a postdoctoral fellow, but the fishes that we were studying are Mexican fishes. In fact, in the Zyvophorus uh, genus, the sword tails, which you'll find a number of sword tail species in pretty much any pet store. The mollies, the little sword tail mollies. Yeah, so so mollies are zyvophorus. Um, the molly males don't have the sword that gives the, mm. or the the common name to the family, the sword tails. Um, but you'll also see when you're at most pet stores some of the zyvophorus helleri, the green sword tail, which strangely enough, in the domestically bred strains are bright orange. So they're not green, but they are actually <laughs> green. They are zyvophorus helleri, which is the green sword tail from Mexico, but it's just very popular mm. in the uh, pet trade. A lot of people might not think Texas and immediately think fish, right? Maybe you, <laughs> you're it, Texas and you think desert. You, you think Texas, you think heat, but te- Texas has a lot of incredible rivers just running through it. And because it connects, it's warm, it connects to the Gulf. You have a lot of really interesting species, like warm weather species um, that you find in Texas, fresh waters that are really, really interesting to study. Um, and some of those species that we're studying in Mexico have been introduced to Texas waters. And so it's interesting to look at introduced versus native populations. So yeah, a lot of really interesting fish research goes on in Texas, actually. And mollies are fascinating. We did an episode a long time ago about the Amazon molly. Yes. The little clone army, <laughs> girl boss, queen. Yeah, girl boss. <laughs> that was one of the things that I love about the Zyvophorus, this genus in general. They're live bearers, right? So they give birth to live young. And there aren't that many fishes that do that. You know, some really interesting groups. But in, in terms of, you know, general reproductive strategies, most fishes use eggs, right? And then we've got this one little army of clones. And the clones. You've got the clones. Bopping around. And some of them always. <laughs> It seems like a a kind of a natural sort of progression from studying animals in Texas, you know, think of like a dry sort of arid environment to the dry arid environments of Australia, where our animal friend for today comes from. How did you make that leap from fish in Texas to birds in Australia? So it was actually the opposite uh, Ah, opposite opposite sequence. Yeah, I've got my PhD studying the satin bowerbird, which is an Australian species of bird, although I was at the University of Maryland. So I would travel each year along with other graduate students and a crew of volunteer field assistants, some of the most important people on the planet are volunteer <laughs> field assistants because I, mean, I love every one of them, you know, and I'm, I think most of them really like me. Um, but, you know, we ask a lot of volunteer field assistants, you know, whether it's me or anybody else, you know, in the field doing work. So thank you, volunteer field assistants. But yeah. You know who you are. Flowers, flowers, flowers. You know flowers. who you are. You really do. <laughs> Yeah, I did my PhD work at the University of Maryland studying the satin bowerbird in Australia. So I'd go there each year for the fall, basically the fall semester at Maryland. Graduate students in the lab that I was in studying bowerbirds wouldn't take any classes at Maryland because we were literally in Australia collecting all of our field data for the year, all of our data on everything from having birds in hand, hundreds to thousands of birds in hand, taking morphometric measurements, putting colored bands on their legs. And who knows how many in the bush? <laughs> how many you've got, how many banding birds in the hand, <laughs> how many birds are in the bush. Now, what's pretty cool is that this population of satin bowerbirds we studied had been studied for almost 25 years by the time I even got into the lab. Meaning wow. we estimated that we had about 96 to 98% of the birds in this population 
banded with colored leg bands. Most of the birds that we would see each year early in the season when we were collecting, when we were actually catching them, trapping and mist nets in order to take these measurements and put leg bands on them, most of those birds were first year birds, naive birds. So we had a pretty good coverage of the, the birds in this population, which made it a really powerful system to ultimately do what I did and what other graduate students were able to do and track individual birds as they move through mate choice and whatnot. So I started at, at, in Australia, then went to Texas, but you had asked about like how I got to Bowerbirds. This is a fun thing, I think, for students to think about and, and to know. I had a great graduate school experience. I couldn't have asked for more. And one of the primary reasons why I think I got there was as an undergrad, I really started to pay attention. And one of my professors at the University of Montana, which were, where I got my bachelor's, gave me this suggestion. He said, as you're going through these classes, think about the things that you find really interesting that your professor says or that you read in the textbook, because those are the things you might want to take to the next step. You know, you literally find like the, the system or the species that you think is just so interesting. And it, for me, it was, I was introduced to satin bowerbirds. I had never, never even knew they existed until I was taking an animal behavior class at the University of Montana. And I learned about bowerbirds and it blew my mind. I wanted to know everything there was to know about bowerbirds. And so I literally took my professor's advice. I looked up who are the primary professors and researchers studying bowerbirds and I just started sending emails to one of them and said, hey, this is who I am. I'm, I've read some of your papers. I'm absolutely blown away by bowerbirds and fascinated by them. I'll be graduating in a couple of years. So I think I started, in my junior year, I first reached out to him. And I said, do you think you might have some space in your lab? And so he and I just struck up a correspondence. And so in my senior year, we were able to, or he was able to secure me some funding as a graduate student. And the rest is sort of history. I started at the University of Montana and I was off to Australia like a month after I started. It was just kind of a dream come true. I think that serves as good uh, motivation to people who need to be reminded, shoot your shot. Shoot your shot. Find what you find you, you're passionate about, whether it's Bowerbirds or, or graphic design, you know, and find someone. Who, send who, the email. Send the email. Yeah. Find someone who's doing <laughs> what you do, right? Or what you want to do and who's, or who's asking the questions that you find really interesting and just shoot that email out there, right? And the worst that can happen is, well, they don't respond, which would be a drag, but the worst that can happen is they say, you know, <laughs> I don't think I will have funding, you know, this year, but maybe next year. Who knows? But yeah, shoot that shot for sure. You never know. You could you could wind up in Australia studying bowerbirds. Studying the coolest <laughs> animal on the planet. <laughs> so let's talk about the coolest animal on the planet. Since you mentioned that you had never even heard of them until you they came up in this course you were taking, I think that a lot of people listening are maybe in the same boat as you. Maybe this is that moment for a lot of people who are like, what are you talking about? What is a satin bowerbird? Yeah, absolutely. So satin bowerbirds are one of about 20 species of birds in the bowerbird family. Talana rinkity. I like that it's got rinkity Talana in it. Rinkity. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it means feather noses. So they they have feathers that grow pretty far down onto their rostrum, onto their beaks, just kind of covering their nostrils. So they're slightly longer feathers on their beaks than you might expect. And so they got the a fine feather, mustache. They got the feather nose as their uh, as their scientific <laughs> name, the feather noses. But bowerbirds are found in Australia, uh, various parts of Australia, and then up into Papua and into southern Indonesia. And what makes them so fascinating and also unique is that males in most bowerbird species, with the exception of, I think, two catbird species, build these stick structures called bowers. And the bower is built on the ground. It's woven from sticks that the males collect from the environment. Um, it is not a nest. 
at all. In fact, it's only used for courtship and copulation. If the female decides that, yep, you're the male I want to mate with, she'll copulate or mate with him and then go off, build the nest and raise the chicks on her own while the male tidies up his bower and waits for the next female. So males are not building the bowers in order to use them as nests. They are literally using them as courtship sites. And so once they've built this, this stick structure, and bowers come in all sorts of different types. And the satin bowerbird that I studied build what's called a um, avenue-style bower. And so try to picture on the ground this avenue of sticks, well-woven in the bottom, all woven together into sort of a basket in the bottom. And these sticks come up on both sides, maybe about a foot high, and really make a bower, like an arching avenue that the female stands in when she arrives for courtship to assess the male as a potential mate. She stands inside the bower and the male does this elaborate song and dance on the platform in front of the bower. So the bower is just used as a site for courtship. All form, no function. All form, <laughs> well, I mean, the function, right, is attraction, right? Right, yeah. For, for males, this is critical. And it was really interesting because you'd see all sorts of variation from male to male in terms of their bower quality. And then I should also mention one of my favorite things about them is that not only do they build these bowers, but they'll clear a court around the bower and lay down in satin bowerbirds anyway, lay down a mat of yellow straw and then decorate <sighs> on top of that straw with brightly colored objects like feathers and flowers. They readily use artificial objects, so they are happy to use shiny objects. They love blue. The color, they are obsessed with the color blue. The satin bowerbird <laughs> is obsessed with the color blue. They will choose blue objects over any other colored objects to decorate their bower platforms with. And in answer to the, the question that usually comes after, we're not entirely sure why. <laughs> we looked at their eyes. We looked at the visual processing system and they're not particularly like blue biased um, physiologically. And so we're not totally sure why blue? Um, it might be, it seems that blue objects are naturally a little rare in the areas mm. where that bowerbirds are found. So maybe a male that is able to acquire and keep a lot of blue decorations could indicate some aspect of his condition, his strength, or his health, because this is one of my favorite things about bowerbirds too. When male satin bowerbirds aren't at their bowers, tidying it up and practicing their, their displays, waiting for a female to arrive, there's a good chance they're at their neighbor's bower destroying it <laughs> and stealing all of his decorations to use at their own bower. So in other words, perhaps in the face of this really intense competition for decorations, perhaps a male that's able to acquire and retain a lot of decorations on his bower is signaling to females his dominance, which and being able to be dominant in a lot of species we know is related to condition or parasite load. You know, males with fewer parasites that are in better health are just better able to compete in highly competitive environments. And so maybe that's maybe that's what females get by choosing males with the most decorations as mates. But it's, so it's just so much fun. It's just such a fun system to work <laughs> in. So much charisma. I love the idea of the male bowerbird leaning up against the bar, like <laughs> next to a female bowerbird and be like, hey, girl, I got a wide assortment of blue objects. And, and what's so <laughs> awesome, Ellen, is you don't know how like spot on you are with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> we will sit there and observe males at their bowers, and you'll see when a female arrives, she'll sit up in a, on a branch up above the bower, and she'll sit there sometimes for minutes on end while the male <laughs> goes around his bower and picks up his favorite decorations and shows them to her. He'll hop over, <laughs> he'll pick up his favorite feather, and he'll hop over to her, and he'll show it to her. He'll present it. He'll cock his head to both sides, like, look at this feather. 
Hey, girl, yeah. look at this water bottle cap I've got. Grab her and bring her down for a courtship. Bring her down to the bower. He'll go and grab something else. He'll go and grab a flower, right? Or a piece of what blue, bright this? blue plastic. And so, yeah, just trying to coax her down. And then once she comes down to the bower, then the, the male satin bowerbird has a pretty elaborate song and dance with all these various you know, physical, behavioral, acoustic components, which is really fun to watch. They puff themselves up like little blue chickens and strut around on the power oh. platform and throw their wings out to the side and dance across like they're sliding. It's it's fantastic. It sounds like the female bowerbird is putting him through an absolute gauntlet. <laughs> you got to have the good decorations first so that she'll even consider <laughs> even coming to look at your bower. You're exactly right. <laughs> and actually, it's almost like that was almost felt like a planted question <laughs> or a planted statement, Ellen, because that's exactly what I did for my PhD dissertation. So what I did was I separated males because we have all this data on mating success because all of our almost all of our birds in our population are banded with unique colored leg bands. So we literally know individuals from other individuals. And what we do is at each bower, about four or five feet from the bower, looking right down the avenue of the bower, we set up a video camera that turns on automatically. It's connected to a little infrared, basically a little security device you would put in your house. But we've jury rigged it. So that is attached to the camera and a car battery. And every time there is an animal or every time there's movement on the Bauer platform, the IR device is triggered and it turns the camera on for 40 seconds. And the camera just keeps rolling as long as that IR device is triggered by body movement around the Bauer. So what we end up coming back with after a field season is literally thousands and thousands of hours of mating related, courtship related behavior of all these birds, and we can literally tell which male is courting. Obviously, it's his bower, but also he's got those colored leg bands. And the females that are visiting males have colored leg bands. So what I was able to do was reconstruct complete female mate searching patterns. So I literally mm. know if I'm watching female RYK, that's her banding, band combination, I'm watching her observe courtship from this male, then that male the next day, then she goes back to this male, then a different male on the third day. And I can tell from those five different males that she assessed as potential mates, I know how long she was in courtship with them. I know the sequence of males that she visited and ultimately who she chose as a mate. And so it's this incredible wow. amount of information. I mean, just a wealth of information on individual female mate searching patterns and male mating success. So what I did was based on previous year's mating success, I paired the males in our study population and half of those males, I augmented the blue decorations at their bowers. I actually literally gave them these little plexiglass squares. And what's cool is I decided which one I was gonna use by giving them a range of blue plexiglass squares. So I would take these like 10 blue plexiglass squares that I had cut at this shop in Brisbane it's so funny. You go into the shop in Brisbane and you say, this is what I need. And this is what I need it for. And they look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> what I need is no, this is for birds. I need, is I need to see which ones the birds like. I need to a bunch of tiny little blue squares that I'm going to give to satin bower birds to see which ones they like the most. You know, these guys look at me like you were just, they're like Americans. Americans. <laughs> I need to see which blue is best which for birds. Like the most. This is my dissertation. Um, it's really, really crucial. Um, and so, so I figured out which of the blue plexiglass, you know, hue they preferred the most. Then I went back to the shop and said, okay, now what I need is like 500 of those, <laughs> of this one color. 
right? They're like, oh, what are you, you what are you doing? You again, right? They're like, yeah, oh God, lock the doors. Right. It's the bird square guy. <laughs> exactly, right? Do we have enough blue for him? And so I took those back and at half of the male's bowers, I augmented, I gave them 20 blue tiles and I also glued them to the, lo- the heads of long screws that I sunk into the bower platform because I wanted to maintain some level of control over the fact that the augmented males have these blue decorations, unaugmented males don't given that there's so much decoration stealing, right, among males, I didn't mm. want I didn't want that number to fluctuate too much, right? So I needed mm-hmm. to try to ensure that that the augmented males decorations stayed where they were. And they did for the most part. So get this. This is my favorite thing in the world. What I found, <laughs> because I was able to follow individual females, right, as they're assessing males through mate choice, what I found was that early in the mating season, what females will do is they will oftentimes visit males' bowers while the bower-owning male is absent. Literally, the male <gasps> is not present. So if if those females are using those visits in their assessment decisions, then presumably the only thing they have to assess is like the bower quality and the decorations because literally the male right. is not there, right? So what I found was that all females overwhelmingly returned for courtship after these initial visits to males with augmented bower decorations. So mm, the blue was helping. It was helping. It was helping in these initial decisions when the male himself was not available for assessment, right? That's very relatable though, because you wouldn't want to like be looking at someone's like Tinder profile while they're like standing next to you. <laughs> right? Like that's weird and awkward. Yeah, absolutely awkward. <laughs> and so they're there. It's an easy thing to assess. A male either has a lot of blue or he doesn't. And so it might be that this initial stage of assessments is just a, a first pass, giving females a general idea of which males they might want to revisit to see the song and dance, to assess the song and dance. So females overwhelmingly preferred males with these augmented blue decorations to return for what we call pre-nest building courtships. And why we call them pre-nest building courtships is because this is a, uh, a number of males that a female will visit for courtship just before she builds her nest. So a female will visit a male, male's bower when he's not present, use the decorations and decisions to return to assess his courtship display then females will take a break. This usually takes a matter of, you know, three or four days, maybe a week after she has sampled a subset of the males she initially visited in these courtship displays. She goes off and builds her nest for a few days. And it's it's amazing. Satin bowerbird nests are rather pathetic. Like they're really <laughs> not well made, which is ironic because male satin bowerbirds are about the best weavers in the world. Like they're building these incredible stick structures. Like incredible stick structures these bowers they hogged all of the uh construction (laughs) skill points females don't have like the genes for the for like weaving sticks together at all they just build these plate (laughs) sort of plate sized rather flat uninteresting nests but they work right i mean the eggs aren't rolling out so i mean obviously they work but stick on a branch (laughs) stick on a branch yeah right in the crag but what's really interesting is that females go off and build their nests and then return to a subset of the males they assessed in pre-nest building courtship for post-nest building courtships. And it's from that subset of males sampled in post-nest building courtships that females will choose a single male as a mate. And that's important in, in species where we see these really elaborate male display traits like bowerbirds, peafowl. Males do not provide parental care. So Females are making critical decisions in their mate choice assessments because they're not going to get any help from that male raising the chicks. Literally, the only thing they get from the male is the genes that he passes on to their offspring. 
So females are looking for the best genetic males because that's the only thing they're going to get from them is the genetics. So what's really interesting, and here's what just blew my mind. This is totally unexpected. Although now looking back, it shouldn't have been. Um, so I, mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned that all females return to males with augmented bower decorations for those pre-nest building courtships because they see the blue. They're like, yep, I'm going to check out his song and dance. So they return for that. This is where things get really cool because of the females that assess males in pre-nest building courtships, because of we have such a great canvas of this population in terms of banding, and we can I can follow individual females as they move through and assess relative ages of females, here's what I found in post-nest building courtships. Young and inexperienced females, so one-year and two-year-old females, overwhelmingly returned, even after seeing the whole song and dance, the, the male's there doing his dance, in pre-nest building courtships, young, inexperienced females overwhelmingly preferred to return for post-nest building courtships with males that had augmented bower decorations, whereas three-year-old and older females did not. Their mm. decisions related to whether or not to return to assess a male in these post-nest building courtships were unaffected by the decorations. So huh. literally young, inexperienced females mating decisions were overwhelmingly influenced by blue decorations, whereas older, more experienced females, they use the blue decorations when the male's not present because they still all returned for courtship to males with augmented decorations after those initial visits when the male's not there. But these older, more experienced females, once the male himself is there doing his elaborate, complex song and dance, this multifaceted display, it seems like they're largely ignoring the decorations and have mm. instead are starting to focus on these more complex, multifaceted displays. And so I just, like one of my colleagues, Gail Patricelli, who's now just one of my, still one of my all-time favorite people, does, studies greater sage grouse at UC Davis. She, she coined this, the, the boy band phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> and then essentially young, inexperienced females are just, they're, they're affected by the bling. The glitz and glamour. Yeah, but that, and that probably leads you to a pretty good male. Because again, you can't keep these bower decorations in the face of really stiff competition if you're not decently strong and physically fit and, and good condition. So it probably gives young females at least a pretty good mate choices. But because decorations can be stolen, it's not a real, mm. it's not a trait you probably want to re completely rely on. And so what I hypothesized was that older, more experienced females are simply switching from focusing on easily assessed, like bower decorations. A male either has a lot of blue or he doesn't. That's a very easy sort of assessment rule, right? To something much more complicated and nuanced that probably results in older, more experienced females ultimately making better mate choices than young, inexperienced females. Which I mean, the, the parallels are just kind of too fun to think about, right? <laughs> and, like they reach the age where they start to see through the Rolex and the sports car, right? They're like, that doesn't fool me anymore. Right. They're just looking for more substance, more information, and probably these elaborate and intense physical displays give them more accurate information about the genetic quality of that male than just focusing on blue decorations. <laughs> it's extremely relatable. Super I'm fun. just saying, because <laughs> you mentioned like in retrospect, that shouldn't be as surprising as it is. Right. And like listening to this as like a female human being yeah. <laughs> has dated people. Right. I'm like, yeah. We can all relate to that, male or female, right? I mean, it really is just relatable. Like the, the, yes. the things that we focus on when we're young and inexperienced are just 
oftentimes fundamentally different than what we what we place importance on when we're older. We look back just thinking, what what was I doing? <laughs> what was I doing? You think female satin bowerbirds look back at their like Facebook memories and they're like, Ooh, like they kind of cringe a little bit. They're like, oh no, what was I doing? No doubt. What's really cool is we know in a number of species that females do use past experience and like clutch success, things like that. Mm. Deciding, did I make a good choice? Because one of the things some females will do in satin and bowerbirds and others um, in which we have good mate choice, mate assessment data for is females will if they find a good, quote unquote, good male and how they decide if it's a good male is we're not totally sure, but clutch success seems to be a really important sort of character that they might pay attention to. Uh, and obviously when I say pay attention to, I mean like innately, right? They're not thinking mm. through this whole thing, but females that recognize that they lost a clutch and that then switch mm. mates the next year might enjoy better, more fitness. They might not have another lost clutch. So they'll kind of update that information. But what's interesting is when a female does find a good male and, and it meets whatever criteria, whatever genetic criteria she needs it to meet in terms of her chick being healthy and survives and fledges and all of that, she might then forego the mate assessment process, which comes with a lot of costs, energetic costs, you know, literally moving through the forest to assess males comes with predation costs. The more you're moving, right. the more likely you are to get a predator's attention or run into a predator. And so they, they will oftentimes use these highly ad hyper adaptive strategies to reduce the cost of mate assessment by just going right back to that same male the next year, assessing mm. one or two courtships and then just mating with him and being done with it. And it's so cool because it's just an efficiency exercise, right? right? Females are benefiting. There's no need to go assess a bunch of other males if you raised a healthy chick with this one, right? It's like if I have a coffee shop that I know is going to give me a good cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Why waste the gas to go try the one on the yeah. other side of town? No, I know what I like. Yeah. <laughs> hey there, we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, it's time for our ratings for Satin Bowerbirds. So stick around. What is up, people of the world? Do you have an argument that you keep having with your friends and you just can't seem to settle it? And you're sitting there arguing about whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars, or you can't decide what is the best nut, or can't agree on what is the best cheese. Stop doing that. Listen to We Got This with Mark and Hal, only on Max Fun. Your topics asked and answered objectively, definitively, for all time. So don't worry, everybody. We, we got, got this. this. We got this. They can be anywhere, at your office, in your car, and they are wrong. My mom says that the gray house didn't exist, but she's wrong. He just does it wrong. Someone in your life is wrong about something. Something small, something weird, something vitally important. Only one person has the courage to tell them just how wrong they are. You know what you did was wrong, but your daughter is a liar who eats garbage. <laughs> <laughs> they call me Judge John Hodgman. Listen to me on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. If someone in your life is doing you wrong, don't just take it. Take it to court. Submit your case at MaximumFun.org slash JJHO. Okay, so I'm obsessed. Yeah. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of myself in these birds, which I'm very, I'm very into. But also, you know, we, we're talking a lot about these like fascinating behaviors. I want to talk a little bit about 
the nuts and bolts of the bird's body, mm. like the sort of physiology of the bird itself. On this particular podcast, if this is your first time listening, we review animals by rating them out of 10 in different categories. And the first of which is effectiveness, which is just how well the animal is physically adapted to its environment, the challenges it faces, things it's trying to do. Uh, what would you give the satin bower bird out of 10 for physical effectiveness. Yes, the satin bowerbird's got to be a 10. And in, in lots yeah. of it really does. They use the forest so well. The males are so good at finding just the right lighting environment. They will search for the right lighting before they build their bower. So they want to make sure oh. the spotlight is on them. Um, so they're very good at finding the right spot in the environment. They are great at long distance communication. So males will call above their bowers to try to bring females closer to them. And then they'll, you know, once the female arrives, she'll start doing that, you know, showing off some of their decorations and whatnot. Um, the other reason I would give them a 10 is they they deal really well with human encroachment. So oh. uh, it, as much as we may marvel at satin bower birds, a lot of Australians, and, and not that there's no like judgment here, a lot of Australians don't. <laughs> they're kind of, they're not, they're very common. They are not really afraid of humans. And so you see them at a lot of like rest areas within their range you'll find a bower near every campsite or every campground. You'll find a bower <laughs> near every rest area in part because they love the garbage that we leave behind as decorations. So literally, if you find a satin bower bird's bower, a male's bower near like a campground, it will be covered with blue garbage. <laughs> Straws and bottle tops. They love those milk. fruit snack wrappers. Fruit snack wrappers. I'm not even joking. But I mean, it just looks like a garbage bird just set up shop here and has been like snacking and just throwing the garbage out the back of the bower. You know, it's just. And so, honestly, I think I would give them a ten. They adapt really well to human encroachment, which unfortunately, like in so many other places, is is pretty common. And they're also just they're very good at what they what they do at communicating through the environment, spacing their bowers and and just they've got some real staying power, um, which is not common for birds oftentimes that have these really elaborate displays. I mean, you think of the birds of paradise, which are actually quite closely related to the bower birds. And they suffer due, due to human encroachment, right? Many of the birds of paradise are, are endangered or threatened, um, whereas very few of the bower birds are. So they tend to they tend to just handle human activities better than many of the, like the really elaborate species. I was thinking about other birds that have these really elaborate courtship displays. Mm. I'm thinking of the birds of paradise, but also mm. that um, Netflix documentary, um, the one with the dancing birds. Yeah. What is it called? Those are mannequins, the little dancing, like the little moonwalking birds. Yes, there's a whole Netflix documentary that's like all tons of these yeah. different types of little birds that have like crazy dances and yeah, stuff like that. But when I'm thinking about those, something that I'm seeing in them that I don't, I, I was just looking at pictures of, of satin bower birds, and something that I'm not seeing in those that I would have expected would be these really either flashy bright colors that these other birds have, or like mm. a lot of times they'll have some sort of structure like these really long feathers or right. some sort of like bright patch or something like you'll see some sort of vision visual signal built into the animal's body that like signal its sort of viability as a mate. Yes. But I, I'm looking at pictures of satin bower birds and they seem kind of like plain old little black birds, <laughs> right? Like you wouldn't see them and think that they're really sort of going for the wow factor. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I totally get that. You, that makes a lot of sense. So a couple of things about, about satin bower birds, they are highly reflective in the UV. And even though mm. we can't perceive ultraviolet light, we relax the, the photoreceptors in our eyes to see UV, lots and lots of birds can, and satin birds <gasps> certainly can. And so there are patches, we've actually measured them, there are patches of UV uh, reflective plumage that just pop 
in the UV. And so it must just pop towards to females. So even though to us, they look kind of blue black. And also I should say, if you, when you have one in hand or depending on the angle, you're looking at a, a male satin bowerbird, um, they're quite iridescent. They're a lot more blue than it might look at first, again, depending on the lighting and the angle. But in the UV, we know they have some patches that really glow. And so we're, we may miss those simply because we literally can't perceive them. The other thing is, what's really interesting, and I love it that you asked that, is that in bowerbirds, we have this, what we call an extended phenotype, right? Physical features that are essentially part of the male's display, not essentially, literally part of the male's display, but they are physically separate from him, right? Mm. Literally the bower and the decorations, what's interesting is there's some suggestion that on an evolutionary level, there's been some transference from male ornamentation, the actual, like you were saying, like bright colors, like long plumage on the male to this extended phenotype. If you think about it, the male almost always will display with a decoration or two in his beak while he's displaying to the female. And so it could very well be that the male's almost making up for the lack of really elaborate plumage by using other elaborate, brightly colored objects to augment his display. You know, it's like they become him. Yeah, they're like an extension yeah. of his body. It's an extended phenotype. That's actually what we call it in like evolutionary biology is an extended phenotype. Yeah. It's really interesting that both of those things, both the like having these patches of UV that are visible to them, but not visible to us, uh, and probably a lot of other animals it's like not visible to, but also like not having your ornamentation attached to you at all times, 24-7, both of those things address something that I think a lot of these other really flashy birds, they make this cost-benefit analysis, mm -hmm. like trading off camouflage <laughs> for definitely. like for looking flashy and cool and looking like desirable to a mate. But it seems like for the satin bowerbird, like having UV light that like probably a lot of predators that might be hunting them. Yes. If you're bright orange in the middle of the forest, like other things that might be hunting you are going to see you because you're bright orange. But if you have this more subtle things that you can kind of see, like a spy ink pen, <laughs> you can see it. But like, but your predators can't see it, but also you can leave it behind so that you can like go fly off somewhere else and you look a little more subdued and subtle so that like things that are hunting you aren't going to see your, you know, bottle caps and, and candy wrappers while you're flying around. That's exactly right. That's massive. I think that is one of the huge benefits of having uh, some of your elaborate display elements physically separated from literally physically separated from your body. Yeah, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. You're not you're not carrying around those attention getting ornaments all over the place. I always feel bad for peacocks that oh, are geez. trying to like <laughs> they're trying to fly through the forest and dragging around this giant train of a tail behind them. No <laughs> doubt. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever and I, I know a couple people who have raised peacocks and they talk about how easily their tail feathers detach. And the reason for that is because that is typically what the first thing that a tiger grabs as the bird's trying to get off the ground or run. It's a giant handle. It's a giant handle. The tiger grabs the tail and the tail <laughs> just kind of pops off. Although it certainly slows the male down and does increase the likelihood he's going to be that tiger's dinner. Fascinating cost-benefit analysis that goes into the growth and the evolution of these really ridiculously elaborate male display traits. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and a lot of them do come at a cost. I feel like they're they're kind of making up for it, right? Rather than having their flashiness built in, they're making up for that that sort of more minimalist aesthetic that they've got on their body by, yeah. you know, supplementing it with their behavior. So, I mean, the next category that we rate animals on is ingenuity, mm -hmm. which is 
their behavior, things that they're doing. We've already covered a lot of this ground, but what do you give Satin Bowerbirds out of 10 for ingenuity? It's got to be a 10. I mean, it absolutely it has, has to, to be. It has to be. I mean, look at the things that they do, the, the bowers that they build. And I should say, we focus a lot and talk a lot about, you know, male bowerbirds building bowers, but literally my dissertation was focused on the female side of this whole equation. And I don't want to leave them out. They are doing some of the most cognitively sophisticated mate assessment searches that we are aware of, like in non-human animals. It's really cool cognitive stuff that they're doing. But of course, the males have these flashy displays. And so we focus a lot on them and their cognition. It does seem like the more intelligent males do better in mate choice. And so there have been a couple mm. of studies, a couple of labs that have been looking at satin bowerbird cognition and relating that to mate assessment. Um, and I'm fascinated to see what they find out. I don't think those that's really been published much yet. But in terms of ingenuity, it's got to be a 10. These males are using what the environment gives them. They readily use, like I said, um, you know, human-made objects, artificial objects. I literally had, the first year I went out to, to Wallaby Creek, and that, that was the name of our field site, literally the creek that runs through the valley is Wallaby Creek uh, in northern New South Wales, Australia. And the first year I went out, I made the mistake of bringing a blue toothbrush toothbrush with like a oh, blue handle and all, that's gone yeah, and we, we had no running water no electricity but we did have a big like water collection cistern out behind this little cabin that we made kind of our home base and so we brush our teeth back there and you know most of us would just leave our toothbrush on this like makeshift sink below the the tank and i came out you know one morning and my toothbrush was gone well, that's weird. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's weird. And I asked one of my one of the uh, grad students with us. I was like, my toothbrush is gone. And I think it was actually Gail Patricelli. She said, um, "Is your toothbrush blue?" I said, "Yeah." And she said, "It's at WDR's Bower. I'm sure of it. WDR <laughs> is one of our males right across the creek from our cabin." And he would regularly come over to the cabin and literally stand in the doorway like, what you got for me today? Just looking for garbage that we had dropped. <laughs> so we had to keep the floor of our cabin rather clean because otherwise WDR would take tin foil or anything we would drop and put it on his bower. And we didn't want to be contributing to the artificial <laughs> bower. So we tried to keep things really clean. Anyway, sure enough, I go down, I walk across the creek into the forest. I know exactly where WDR's bower. I go my toothbrush is sitting right on the middle of his bower platform as his like it's the centerpiece decoration. <laughs> like literally his prize decoration was my toothbrush. <laughs> you can't take it from him now. Oh, I had to. Yeah, I did. I did. Oh. I had, one, I had to brush my teeth. <laughs> and, and two, again, we didn't want to be the source of too many artificial objects in the population. So we would try to grab those that we knew we had produced. <laughs> But yes, ingenuity <laughs> 10, for sure. You know, you mentioned that they will kind of sabotage each other, which is diabolical and hilarious. But also, I was wondering if you ever noticed them not just like sabotaging each other, but maybe kind of like learning from each other. Like maybe if one satin bowerbird looks over, like a male looks at another one, he's like, ooh, that guy has this decoration and he's getting a lot of ladies. Maybe I want to do mine like that too. Like I've seen documentaries where birds will kind of do this. They'll see what's working for other birds and they'll be like, let me try that. Like, did you ever notice this happening? Yeah. So I think like you're referring to maybe some of like the cultural transmission studies, you know, looking at birds passing along, like the, the, I think it's the the great tits of Britain that literally have passed mm. on through cultural transmission and learning. This isn't a genetic trait. The ability to take the bottle tops off of milk bottles so that they can drink the milk, <laughs> like just sip the milk. So they literally have been, one bird will watch another bird do it and, and learn from that and start doing it. Here's something that's so cool in satin bowerbirds and all other bowerbirds that I'm aware of have a long juvenile period. So male satin bowerbirds don't get their blue-black adult plumage until they're seven years old. 
And mm. it, so it's not until they're seven or eight that they would even have their own bower. Up until that time, and this is just, this was actually kind of an offshoot of my dissertation work. And I had collected so much data and I just never got around to working it up. But it was another fascination of mine was learning in the system, the learning of displays. Because for those seven years that young males uh, have this more like female typical plumage before they get that blue black plumage, they are courting the heck out of each other at what we call practice bowers, which they'll build anyway. They have no idea what they're doing, right? Like one of them will just decide, I'm going to put a stick in the ground here, and then another one does, and then another one does. And they don't. Oh, look bless them. They look, oh, these, these bowers look so bad. It's like kids' macaroni art. Yeah, like. <laughs> right, right. They might go on to become Picasso, you know, some great artist. They're trying. But they have to start with macaroni, you know. Like, <laughs> it's the same thing. And so there's a lot. To long story short, there is a ton of learning that goes on in the satin bowerbird like development of their their displays. Lots and lots of learning. You're not just born with the ability. You don't just hatch as a satin bowerbird male knowing how to do all this stuff. Some of it certainly is genetic. I mean, they will start building a bowers practically as soon as they fledge. They'll just start playing with sticks. It's so funny. One-year-old males will literally, I've just watched them, they will literally pick up a stick and drop it drop it right at their feet and then wonder why they'll cock their head and and you just can tell they're wondering why it didn't stick like they, like they want to but build I did a bower, it. right they see all these other males building bowers but they don't just know how to stick a stick in the ground they they pick the stick up and then they just drop it and then and then they pick it up again and you'll see them kind of cock their head and it's like okay if I turn my head this way the stick sticks in the ground a little bit and you just you know like I can literally watch these males day after day during the season and see their development, the, their improvement in bower building skills literally across the course of a season, interacting with all these other males. They'll often, often go to adult males' bowers too and solicit courtship as though they were a female. They'll stand inside the bower and they'll watch the adult males display. Um, so I think there's a massive learning component to that. They're literally visiting these adult males to learn from them. I like that they're sort of practicing it from like the female perspective. Yeah. Right. So like gaining some sort of like point of view so they know what it looks like to the female, right? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things we know um, in, in satin bowerbirds is that male displays are intense and can mm. threaten females. They share some element, oh, no. like in many species, they share some elements with aggressive displays. That's very common that some elements that are used in aggressive displays have been co-opted for use in courtship. But because of that, there are elements of males displays in a lot of species and certainly in satin bowerbirds that can actually be threatening to females. And so one of the things that we have found, and again, Gail Petroselli, she built robotic female bowerbirds oh, wow. that she put in the bower to evaluate how female behavior in the bower during courtship affects male courtship behavior. And what she found, and it blew everybody's mind, was that males that are better at modulating their courtship intensity, those potentially threatening aspects of courtship, the males that are able to modulate their courtship intensity in response to female behavior are the more successful males. In other words, it's not good enough just to have the most flashy, intense display. If you can't tone down that display when the female is showing signs that she is unsettled and potentially threatened, you're not going to be a very successful male. The fe you'll end up startling females right out of the bower and they'll fly away. Don't scare her off, bro. Don't scare her off. It's this interesting trade-off, right? Because they have to display intensely because intense displays tell the female something about their quality or condition or parasite load. But you also have to be like present enough and observe the female's behavior to modulate your display intensity to like where she's at. 
which is just so cool. The best males are good at adjusting their displays in relation to female behavior and signals. I wish I could beam this information into the brain of every alpha male dude <laughs> bro on the planet. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> like you gotta tone it down sometimes, my yeah, guy. You can still you can still display <laughs> intensely when you're getting the signals that that's working, but when it's not, just chill. There needs to be some sort of like Bowerbird like dating show. <laughs> you remember how they how Animal Planet? I think it was Animal Planet. They did the Meerkat Manor, yes. where they did like a reality TV show out of this meerkat colony. Absolutely. They need to do that with Bowerbirds and like do it like The Bachelor. I love this idea. I think it's time for us to pitch it. Yeah. Let's put something together. If they just did it like that, like shot it like like a nature documentary, but then gave it some sort of like reality TV narration over it. I think it's a winning that's a Incredible. winning idea. And honestly, that you hit the nail on the head with why Bowerbirds and Satin Bowerbirds are just so much fun to study because they're so accessible. Like the things we're finding about them are just so easily applied to us, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want to avoid like the direct comparison because that gets really complicated. But nonetheless, we can watch what they're doing. We can look at this incredible data we've collected and these results and, and what we've reported and say, wow, I see that operating in humans too. Like really, right. really. Yeah. <laughs> We see so much of ourselves reflected so in the much, bird. So much. It's so relatable. Like it's so easy to get interested in an animal when like you see it and you just immediately you get it. Yeah. You just relate to it. You're like, same. Like, like seriously, when you see a male come back from like destroying his his neighbor's bower, but while he was gone, <laughs> his bower was destroyed. Literally, they will come back with like the sticks and a couple of decorations they stole from their neighbor. And just drop them and they look so dejected. Oh. Like just like you just see if they had shoulders, you could just see the shoulders go down. <laughs> and like you just kinda like, you know, turning their head from side to side, assessing the destruction. <laughs> you can hear the sad music Seriously, in the background. Like now I gotta start all <laughs> over. <laughs> You see, like, all these incredible, like, craftsmanship and the choreography and, like, all of the effort that the Bowerbirds are putting into it. I feel like you just look at him and be like, if he wanted to, he would. Yeah, right? Like, like seriously. <laughs> he's going up to the tallest tree and just frustrated because his wings keep popping out due to instinct. He can't. He just can't. <laughs> he can't leave even though he wants to. The relatability of the behavior, I think, is a lot of their, like, charisma, right? Yes. But these are also just cute little birds. Like, it helps that they're just pretty cute. Which brings us to our last category that we rate animals on, which is aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Which is just how nice the animal is to look at. What do you give the Satin Bowerbird out of 10 for aesthetics? So I'm probably going to go with an 8 here. So the Satin Bowerbird is beautiful. Um, but again, without the bower, the males, to our eyes, are pretty plain and especially from a distance literally look just look like a blackbird i'm a big fan of iridescence iridescence yes. immediately does it for me agreed. like in any context agreed and if you see them close enough honestly if you see a satin bowerbird male close enough like if you're at a campground and it's coming over and harassing you for your blue garbage <laughs> um you will notice that they are actually gorgeous and if you do a search for a satin bowerbird eye it'll blow your mind their eyes i was just looking up pictures of like what they look like and i can see in the pictures oh, they're purple they're gorgeous who has purple eyes <laughs> Right, these bright purple violet eyes that absolutely glow in the UV. So they're also just like headlights uh, reflecting ultraviolet light to 
to females and other males, anybody, anything that can perceive UV. That's like young adult fiction novel protagonist energy, having this like glossy black feathers and then bright purple eyes. Like that's a very like mid 2000s emo. Oh my gosh, you just nailed it. I can picture that now. I absolutely see that. Uh, yeah, and then the uh, the female satin bowerbirds are beautiful in their own right. But if you notice, if you look at what they look like, they're actually kind of a mottled green, lovely mm. color, but much more camouflage which is exactly what you'd expect when it's the females that are sitting on the nest, incubating eggs, taking care of the chicks. You don't want to be bright and flashy, getting a predator's attention. If you're really your sole job during the mating season is to take care of the offspring. You don't, there's no need to bring attention to yourself um, when you're trying to take care of your chicks on the nest. Um, leave the attention getting to the males, right? Let them get, yeah. <laughs> let them get kicked off by the, the gongs. That's a them problem. Love, that's a them problem, right? <laughs> exactly. But they still have the purple eyes. They still have the beautiful eyes. Absolutely gorgeous purple eyes. The females, um, as well as the young males that look like females until they're about seven. So very be- they're beautiful birds, but not in and of themselves like massively striking. A lot of times I like to try to connect the animals that we talk about to ways that they have appeared in pop culture or media or things like that. Mm. And I only know of one satin bowerbird that I've seen like depicted in media, and it is in the video game Webbed. Have you heard of it? I haven't. I don't think so. So Webbed is a video game where you play as a little peacock jumping spider. Love it. You are the jumping spider. Specifically, you are a female peacock jumping spider. And your boyfriend has been taken by a bowerbird. (laughs) And you have to go travel like through this little bug world, this tiny little bug world. It's all physics puzzles. And like you have to navigate by like swinging on webs and stuff like that. And you have to navigate this little bug world. We have to like climb up a tree and get through ant tunnels and stuff like that to rescue your boyfriend from a bowerbird. And so in all of the art for this game, like the promotional art and stuff, there's like this very menacing looking bowerbird in the background. <laughs> if you look up the game webbed, you I can will. see what I'm talking I about. I literally <laughs> just wrote it down. I'm planning on looking up that video game. I love it. Oh, and actually in the art, I just pulled up the art to look at it again to make sure I'm thinking of the right bird. And it does have those like striking bright purple eyes, like yeah, in the awesome. background looks all like scary behind it. <laughs> oh, I am definitely going to check that out. It's an excellent game. Yeah. I, I, yeah there's like, I'm literally going to check that out as soon as we're done here because um, <laughs> now I need to. But in terms of like other pop culture references, like even in Australia and, and people could f- feel free to correct me because I might be wrong about this, but even in Australia, I didn't, we didn't ever really notice like Bowerbird presented or talked about in pop culture for one reason or another it just didn't seem to be in sort of the like the the national psyche as these special birds even though obviously we met a lot of people who were like oh the bowerbirds are amazing it just didn't seem like culturally that there was too much like thought about bowerbirds they were especially the satin it's a really like i said it's a really common bird you know not threatened at all um you see them around like just you know campsites and whatnot and so Maybe it's a little bit that they're taking their their incredible behavior is taken for granted. Um, but regardless, I just didn't see them much in pop culture. There's one book that I loved, and I got it when our kids were were young, and they used to really enjoy you know reading it with me. And so they build. That's a great title. Yeah, and so they build, and it's all about it's a children's book about animals with extended phenotypes. Uh, so there's satin bowerbirds and termites building these massive mounds, and beavers, these ecological engineers. Great book. Love, love that book. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily a pop culture reference, you know, to Mm. them. It's more about just how incredible these animals are that build these structures out in the world that that then influence the environment or a part of the ecosystem. 
maybe it seems to folks that live where these birds live the way that we have grown so like desensitized to like pigeons and crows yeah right that like these are like spectacularly intelligent and brilliant creatures that are just around us so much that we're like yeah whatever yeah and they are they are garden raiders that is one thing i know that people really don't mm. appreciate like about them they will eat your <laughs> the fruit right off your trees in satin bowerbird country people have to net their trees because of the satin bowerbirds so in, in that way, I think they're not necessarily universally loved mm. by all. That's true. I guess it's easy for me to pile love on them when like, I don't have to deal right. with them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm exactly, exactly that. I was like appalled when I first heard like a farmer talk about shooting satin power birds. But then I also, you know, listened long enough to hear that they literally get zero figs off their trees, right? If, mm-hmm. if the satin power birds are just all around. So not my favorite like control strategy, but at the same time, I'm not that farmer trying to get figs, you know? So. Yeah, I, there's always a human component yeah, to yeah, it. Absolutely. Well, as we're wrapping up for today, first of all, thank you so much. Oh, I'm obsessed. What are you working on right now that you want people to know about? Or where can people like find you and keep up with your work? Yeah, people who think this is st- fun stuff to talk about. Um, the two places where I've been kind of actively working to, to, to be a science creator and share some content is on TikTok, where you can find me, Chuck Darwin, all one word. Um, and then on Instagram, Chuck Darwin Science. Although you'll find that my Instagram right now is really just reposted um, TikToks. I haven't dedicated much time to original content for Instagram, but I probably will down the road. I have mixed feelings about meta and all of that. So, but you can <laughs> absolutely find me on TikTok because that is a heck of a lot of fun. And I just find that I love communicating science on TikTok. It's, it's a ton of fun. And I love the people that follow me and the exposure that uh, I get to other science creators, awesome science content. Awesome. Yeah. And that's where I found you. Yeah, so totally. that's, that's where we met. <laughs> so it works. It really does. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time and your knowledge. This has been a great time. We will talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that the little audio treasures I have presented to you today have impressed you enough to return later. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. We read them all and it makes us very happy and keeps us motivated. If you want to hang out with us online, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for earlier in the episode. You can check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.